are about to listen to is a podcast produced by Philoclea Ministries. Philoclea Ministries is offered to all free of charge. However, there are real and immediate needs associated with it. If you are a regular listener or enjoy any of the content produced by Philoclea Ministries, we humbly ask that you consider becoming a contributor. You can learn more about our funding needs at www.philocleaministries.org. Please note that Philoclea Ministries is not a 401c3 nonprofit organization and that contributions are not tax deductible. Supporting Philoclea Ministries is just like supporting your other favorite podcasters and content creators, and all proceeds pay the production bills, make it possible for us to pay our content manager, and provide a living stipend for Father David. God bless you and enjoy the podcast. Jesus Christ, glory forever. Welcome back, everybody, to our study of the Ladder of Divine Ascent, and we are picking up once again with step number 23, uh, entitled On Mad Pride, and uh, we are looking at saying number 26 this evening, and following this step is the step on meekness and simplicity, uh, which I read through again today, which is absolutely beautiful. And uh, hopefully we'll have an opportunity uh, to get to that. I don't know if we'll get through the rest of this step this evening or not, uh, but no rush as usual. So again, page 172, number 26. A monk possesses unfailing light in the eye of the heart. So unfailing light in the eye of the heart, there's no impediment in the humble monk. Uh, there's no impediment uh, to loving or giving oneself in love or uh, any impediment to seeing the things of the kingdom of God or of discernment that the uh, heart has been purified of the passions. And the eye of the heart uh, here is making reference to the word that the, the fathers often use uh, called noose. And I, the heart, I, the soul. And uh, this is what we seek to purify uh, through the ascetic life and through the life of, of prayer. And uh, it's clear why it would come up, certainly in this step, on pride, which would darken it, that would uh, blind us to the things uh, of God, but most certainly to the truth about ourselves. If you remember in our discussions from the Evergetinos on Monday, Humility is being truthful living, and when the eye of the heart has been darkened uh, because of the passions, uh, one cannot see one's own sin, and this is what makes repentance then uh, become very difficult, if not an impossibility. And so we want to become true monks, as it were, uh, in this sense, uh, having a pure heart that uh, lives within the unfailing light of God. Number 27. A monk has an abyss of humility into which he has plunged and suffocated every evil spirit. John, as always, has uh, tremendous imagery uh, within the text itself that the humility is so great that it's an abyss where the evil spirits are, are drowned and suffocated, which also tells us something important about the, the nature of the spiritual life, that we will often cling uh, to certain attachments that we have that then make room for a kind of backsliding in the spiritual life. And I've mentioned here uh, Pope Shenouda's work, uh, the life of repentance and purity of heart. And he talks about a little passage from uh, the book of Judges of Joshua being ordered by God to drive out the Canaanites. And uh, Joshua does not fulfill the command. And they allow some of them to remain in forced labor. But eventually, uh, the people come to the numbers grow and the people come to uh, uh, intermarry, but also to worship the, the false gods of the Canaanites. And, uh, and so 
Pope Shenouda speaks of Canaanites in the land that often uh, when we are seeking uh, uh, purity of heart, that we, even when we've turned away from specific sins, we will allow Canaanites, as it were, to remain in the land. The, the attachments that we have that lead to the particular sins that we've uh, forsaken. And uh, this will often draw us back uh, to, uh, to where we were in the past. And so uh, this idea of suffocating and you know, plunging every evil spirit in completely, that uh, as we engage in this spiritual battle, uh, there has to be this kind of willingness on our part uh, to look very closely at the, at the heart and uh, at the things that we are attached to, even if they seem benign, uh, because this is part of Shunuda's discussion of it, that often uh, the, these things aren't sinful in and of themselves, but because of our attachment to them, they lead uh, us back to the uh, attachments uh, to our, our particular sins. And it's for this reason that uh, we, in the next step, we'll focus on uh, a kind of simplicity, radical simplicity of life and uh, a, a radical honesty with oneself, guilelessness, uh, that we often are very good at lying to ourselves uh, about our attachments. And we can rationalize uh, that they're innocent, whereas in effect, they can draw us back. And, and so like... Uh, Clamcus here, we are to be you know, true warriors in this sense, willing to sacrifice and cut out of our life the things that can be, uh, can endanger our souls. Number 28, forgetfulness of our falls is the result of conceit, for the remembrance of them leads to humility. And so often in, in the spiritual life that we will push out of the mind and the memory past falls and uh, because of the humbling nature of them and that they often free us from the kind of self-esteem uh, that uh, makes us elevate ourselves in our own eyes or in the eyes of others. We want to have a high estimation of ourselves. And so those embarrassing things of the past or the graver sins that we've committed, uh, the, the fathers will remind us to hold on to them, not in the sense of believing that they're not forgiven or to fall into a kind of despondency or despair, but to acknowledge uh, the uh, poverty of our past and what we are capable of in our lesser moments. And when we rely upon our own strength rather than the, the grace of God. And so to push them out of mind is a sign of conceit, uh, John tells us, that it's a sign of our self-focus and wanting to see ourselves in a more positive light. Isn't it fascinating? I mean, we've talked about this a number of times, both within the Evergetinos and Climacus, that when he's talking about virtues, it's like circling around a gem, seeing every facet of it, its beauty. But he does the same thing with the, the vices, uh, that we circle around them uh, over and over again in order to see the subtle manifestations of them in, in order that we won't be drawn back in them into them again. And something like self-esteem, conceit, self-image, very powerful uh, things for us and more powerful than we, we realize uh, that even when we've turned away from things that we often hide the truth. Number 29, pride is utter penury of the soul, of soul under the illusion of wealth imagining light in its darkness. The foul passion not only blocks our advance, but even hurls us down from the heights. So a poverty, a deep poverty of the soul, 
but presented to us as an illusion of wealth. We will think that we have great gifts, great abilities, talents, uh, great virtue, and uh, pride maintains this illusion when in reality there's the deepest poverty is present. And this is where also he reminds us the greatest fall uh, can come for us. It's often when uh, individuals have grown in virtue to a certain extent and have overcome passions that perhaps they've struggled with for decades that they can become most vulnerable. We can become most vulnerable. That uh, we begin to think that we uh, are, are virtuous or that we don't need the same kind of vigilance that we did uh, when struggling with the passions and so begin to let down our guard. And again, this is where often the greatest fall will happen. And the evil one, as we've mentioned a number of times, is very patient. In fact, will allow us not to fall for a long period of time in order to deepen that illusion uh, of wealth, to give us this uh, illusion of strength. Uh, only in order that the fall might be all the greater. It's kind of unholy patience on the part of the evil one. Number 30, the proud man is a pomegranate rotten inside while outwardly radiant with beauty. Again, another striking image, you know, a fruit that looks uh, delicious and uh, appealing to the eyes, and yet within is rotten, is spoiled. And uh, often, uh, again, with religious delusion uh, or illusion that we uh, can have the outward appearance uh, of of being virtuous. And, you know, when Christ talks about the scribes and the Pharisees, you know, objectively, I think they lived what would have been considered very virtuous life and in the sense of keeping themselves from grave sin and, uh, and had a kind of asceticism. There are many different kinds of Pharisees at that time. And, uh, uh I often like to bring up this one called the broken and bloodied uh, or bloodied and bruised Pharisees that they walked with their eyes cast down to the ground in order that they might not look upon anything that would lead them into sin. And so sometimes they would fall into a ditch or run into a tree or something along those lines. Uh, and so it would be bloodied and bruised. And so the appearance there is embracing a kind of asceticism uh, and even bearing the marks of that asceticism. Uh, yet within the heart, there was often, as our Lord confronted, a, a deep pride that looked at others uh, with a condescending eye, that uh, especially uh, those who would have followed Christ, you know, the fishermen or the hoi polloi, you know, the people of the land who could not keep all the many uh, additional prescriptions that surrounded the law that often these individuals would be looked at with contempt or as lawbreakers. And so here, you know, you know the dress that they wore uh, and the asceticism that they practiced all gave the appearance of, of virtue, whereas with inside there was something quite different, an inability that even created an inability to receive the Lord and what he was offering to them, which was forgiveness and mercy. Uh, Anthony writes, this is funny. I grow pomegranates and I'm not great at knowing when they are ripe. The color can be deceitful to a newbie. <laughs> so that's, is that true? I mean, they can often rot on the vine, as it were, or rot on the tree. I'm not sure how well, they grow. Mm -hmm. my, they, they grow on a tree. They're kind of like apples. 
Okay. Uh, one colloquial term in Brooklyn is Chinese apples. Mm-hmm. My problem was picking them when they're too ripe. I'm uh, sorry, when when they're not ripe because the color looks good on the outside, but inside it's all white, not very tasty. So I said, okay, this year I'm going to leave them long. And I left them too long, and it starts to swell and split, and it falls off. I let it go too ripe. So maybe third time, maybe next year will be better. Yeah, that's right. Develop a keener eye for it. Yep. With practice, mm-hmm. like with virtue. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Marine right sounds like a sport who could be the strongest, but only spiritual. Yes, you know, I think that, you know, asceticism can sort of descend into that where it is meant uh, to free us, to remove the impediments or to humble oneself, uh, to acknowledge one's need for God and lead one deeper into prayer. But it can also harden the heart towards others, especially when uh, we've often talked about the insensitive faculty that helps us in that struggle with sin or passion as it emerges, when that faculty is directed towards other, the harsh eye, the fierceness that would lead us to strike out, strike down sin from ourselves can be directed towards another. And uh, so often something very destructive. Okay, number 31. The proud monk has no need of a devil. He has become a devil and enemy to himself. And so the, the proud monk becomes uh, like Lucifer himself, uh, that you know, he becomes a liar and a son of the father of lies. And, uh, and so has become a demon in and of himself. And certainly this is a warning to all of us as well, that uh, you know, when we embrace that, delusion uh, of, you know, self-mastery over, uh, you know, being lifted up by the grace of God, we we, uh, are, again, placing ourselves above God uh, or equal to God and uh, fall into, you know, a kind of heresy there that we are capable by our own strength Uh, outside of of grace, uh, of growing in virtue. Darkness is foreign to light, and a proud person is foreign to every virtue. And so, again, when we pair the Evergetinos with the uh, Ladder of Divine Ascent, uh, they they really work and have been matching up uh, well lately because we've been talking so much about humility in the Evergatinos, and we've heard there the Father's telling us again and again that even if one is falling short in so many other areas of the spiritual life, uh, and, and in regards to the virtues, that if one has humility, that within humility all the, all the virtues are contained, uh, because humility draws us to the, the very heart of Christ, Whereas pride is the opposite, that within pride are all the vices. And so it undoes uh, even what we think we have gained in the, the spiritual life. This is how negative the effect uh, is and, and what it does to the human heart. It darkens the heart to such an extent, uh, we are told, that it becomes foreign, uh, is foreign to every virtue, he tells us that it drives us away from that which is good or anything that could expose, expose, expose it to light. In the hearts of the proud, blasphemous words will find birth, but in the soul of the humble, heavenly visions. So in the hearts of the proud, blasphemous words will f- find birth. At the end of this step, he's going to examine with us Uh, the struggle with blasphemy and blasphemous thoughts, which can be a source of great sorrow uh, to one who struggles with it. And uh, sometimes it is the result, as he'll show us, of the demon's envy of one who is a simple soul or a humble soul uh, that the, the demons will draw close and uttering uh, blasphemous thoughts, even when one is at liturgy, 
And it can be very disturbing to the individual who experiences it. But to the proud soul, he's telling us here that uh, one opens themselves willingly to this, that the heart has become, again, so darkened that we draw close to the demons, uh, in a sense, of our own accord. And so what begins to arise from our own hearts is blasphemous thought, thoughts. We, we become the source of it rather than it being an affliction uh, as it is often to the to holy souls. And uh, this is an important thing to, to understand and discern because there's uh, quite a few who have this experience and uh, quite a few experience uh, this in the spiritual life. And it can be very disconcerting uh, and can make a person fall into despondency. But I think for our, our sake, it's important to, to see that, okay, this happens uh, sometimes because of our pride. And uh, we, we have to be discerning. And this is, I think, where a good confessor or spiritual director comes uh, in handy in the sense of being able to look closely at what's going on within the heart. Uh, number 34. The thief abominates the sun. A proud man scorns the meek. So he's already here anticipating the next step for us where he will discuss uh, meekness. And the uh, meek soul uh, is one who's uh, that this kind of... Uh, Anger that's directed by sin has been so shaped by the grace of God and the love of God that the heart has been purified. And so purified to such an extent that they radiate, again, you know, the goodness and the beauty uh, of God himself, uh, participate in some way in his glory. And so they become like the sun. And, uh, and so a proud person will not be able to endure or want to be in the presence of a, meek, a truly meek individual because their very presence will expose something, even if not to others, to the individual's own heart. That being in the presence of a saintly figure uh, at times can be an uncomfortable experience, especially if there's part of us that abhors that or mocks that or where it exposes something within our heart that we are keeping hidden and uh i think certainly we see this in christ you know that uh, you know increasingly he becomes a source of anger and agitation uh for the proud of heart uh, to the point that they want to destroy him uh, in the same way that they wanted to destroy john the baptist uh and uh and so we can see often in the spiritual life, and uh, this is what gives rise to it, is kind of uh, an envy uh, that gives way then to malice that seeks to destroy the, the individual or the individual's reputation. Uh, on the way back, uh, in the flight back uh, from Phoenix, I watched... Uh, a little movie called The Man of God about St. Nectarius. And this was his whole life. Uh, he was slandered to his spiritual elder uh, and to the point that the, they had convinced him to such an extent that his uh, spiritual elder would not uh, re return his letters or see him in person. Uh, and basically he was exiled, you know, not being able to find work, even though he was himself a bishop. And I think there was this fear of him because of his goodness and his virtue, his love of the poor, that he would be made a patriarch. And, uh, and so throughout the course of his entire life, everything that he sought to put his hand to and every good that he engaged, engaged in, they sought to dismantle and to destroy his reputation. Uh, he founds or helps to found a uh, women's religious community. Uh, and becomes their spiritual father, and the, the, that whole community comes under attack 
because uh, again of the envy that was directed towards Saint Nectarius. It's only after his death that a formal apology is actually made by the, the hierarchs uh, for how he was treated, how he was slandered. Uh, but I, I think it's for the reasons that Climacus describes here that the you know that light uh, is not is going to be something that those who are immersed in pride are going to want to uh, cut out, want to destroy, and so one should not be surprised uh, to bear a similar cross as Nectarius. Uh, as one enters into the spiritual life, not only spiritual affliction from the demons, but uh, from those who might be immersed in pride, where there is a kind of envy or malicious envy that develops. Uh, number 35. I do not know how it is, but the majority of the proud remain ignorant of their real selves. They imagine that they are free from the passion, from passion, and they only realize their need, lack, and poverty at their departure from this life. So, you know, for someone like John, it's it's a mystery uh, that once one has seen uh, uh, and caught a glimpse of one's own poverty, one once one has seen one's own weakness and sin, that it's hard to imagine uh, a pride that blocks out that vision altogether. And, but what he says here at the end is very interesting. It's only at their death. You know, there's no, one, never is a person so poor as at the moment when they are, are dying, that everything that they've gained or everything that they've held on to uh, as having meaning or giving self-esteem or importance, feeding that need, uh, offers no comfort or consolation, uh, nor can it hide the reality of their real poverty at that moment. Life itself is slipping away, and no thing, certainly in the world, uh, is going to ease that passion or hide uh, that poverty at that moment, uh, and uh, and uh, and that is true even of the individuals that they might have around them. That nobody can go through that with you except Christ Himself and the angels and the saints. And insofar as one has drawn close to them, then and uh, then we are accompanied in and through it. But uh, if we prefer and choose that darkness and blindness, then it can be a terrifying experience. And this is what John is pointing out here, that there is nothing like this poverty at the departure from life than what exists for the proud man. Um, Leo Tolstoy wrote a book about an individual that captures that very well. Uh, I can't remember what it is now, but it'll come to mind. Uh, not important anyways. Uh, number 36, the man enmeshed in pride should make supplication unto the Lord, for vain is the salvation of man for him. And so, make supplication unto the Lord. You know, that it, when one is immersed in pride, uh, only to that extent, only a miracle, as it were, can wrest a person uh, from its grip. And so only the supplication to the Lord, uh, in spite of oneself, can help to remove that illusion, to remove that darkness. Uh, but often it is the very thing that uh, a person does not want to do. Uh, for vain is the salvation of man for him. Uh, that, you know, it's a, a vain effort, certainly, uh, and would be seeking it for his own 
and if he seeks it, he's seeking it for his own purposes at that moment, not necessarily out of, out of uh, a sense of his own poverty. Sharon Fisher writes, I think of Jimmy Carter, not and uh, in a political sense and his acceptance of God to take him when it is his time. Uh, it's, he seems to feel very comfortable with his end. Yes, uh, I imagine a person in his 90s would feel uh, <laughs> comfortable with the idea and even hope for it. Uh, but uh, yeah, I think a holy soul, a, gen a humble soul uh, is not going to have that fear or anxiety about it that it would be very much like going home and you know we hear it in saint paul even a longing for it that paul is willing to remain to continue the work of the lord but his greater desire is to go and be with him and uh one should see that begin to emerge within the heart uh you know uh, not certainly in a disordered way but uh and in, in the sense of our lack of appreciation of life, but our desire for the fullness of it uh, should make us even want to anticipate that moment. Number, uh, let's see, Sister Barbara writes, this translation says the man ensnared by pride will need God's help since man is of no use to him. Right, and so it is only God uh, who can uh, aid him, remove him from that snare, rest him, as it were, from that darkness, that certainly he's not going to be able to do it himself, uh, nor, uh, again, as he says in the previous statement, that he doesn't see it even. So it's only by miracle, as it were, that God pulls him forth out of the snare. Number 37. I once caught this mad imposter as it was rising in my heart, bearing on its shoulders its mother, vainglory, roping them with the noose of obedience and thrashing them with a whip of humility. I demanded how they got access to me. At last, when flogged, they said, we have neither beginning nor birth, for we are progenitors and parents of all the passions. Contrition of heart that is born of obedience is our real enemy. We cannot bear to be subject to anyone. That is why we fell from heaven, though we had authority there. And so obedience, you know, subjecting oneself to another, the will of another, uh, is the only thing that can flog it to such an extent that it lets loose of its grip upon us. Uh, and so, you know, the monastery isn't uh, really the place for the perfect or where the perfect go. I mean, they go there precisely to be able to live in obedience because they know something of their own poverty or willfulness. And so to enter into the circumstances where one has to subject oneself to the will of another holds out the promise of being freed from the, the greatest of vices. And so one would gravitate towards the life for that purpose. And one shouldn't gravitate to that life for any other purpose because you're going to be sorely disappointed. In brief, we are the parents of all that opposes humility. For everything which furthers humility opposes us. We hold sway everywhere, save in heaven. So where, will, so where will you run from our presence? We often accompany dishonors and obedience and freedom from anger and lack of resentment and service. Our offspring are the falls of spiritual men. Anger, calumny, spite, irritability, shouting, blasphemy, hypocrisy, hatred, envy, disputation, self-will, and disobedience. And so, you know, we will be pursued. And it's in particular, uh, we are told here that they will run after uh, individuals who uh, are religious in, in nature. Uh, that uh, 
and he reveals here, or they revealed to him, you know, the way in which uh, it will show itself when somebody experiences dishonor or obedience, uh, or uh, or when they are willing to endure anger uh, or resentment, and they've been given themselves over to service, then uh, it will manifest itself in more subtle ways. Uh, so, you know, certain falls, anger at others, calumny, again, where you you're begin to tear down the character of another, spite, spitefulness, irritability, shouting. Uh, and so within the context of that life, uh, these things begin to emerge within the, uh, the relationships between others, uh, where the spark of that pride can be struck and until it comes into full flame uh, where one is begins to engage in, uh, engage in a kind of blasphemy or hypocrisy, even hatred and envy of the other. And, you know, this is getting back to the movie about St. Nectarius. Again, it was this kind of hatred and envy of this one who was so good, so loved that was driving those who had given their life over to the service of the church. Disputation. I think that's a big one in our day. You know, this as Christian men and women, we often engage in these kind of nasty disputes with each other about things that are religious. And we lose this kind of hum humble spirit and love and respect of the other. And it can be very willful about our own uh, private judgment or personal judgment of something. And it doesn't matter if we're right. I mean, if we lose that capacity to love the other and we do become spiteful or arrogant in engaging them, then we are drawn into that pride. There's only one thing, he goes on to say, that in which we have no power to meddle and we shall tell you this, for we cannot bear your blows. If you keep up a sincere condemnation of yourself before the Lord, you can count us as weak as a cobweb. For pride's saddle horse, as you see, is vainglory on which I am mounted. But holy humility and self-accusation laugh at both the horse and its rider, happily singing the song of victory. Let us sing to the Lord, for gloriously is he glorified. Horse and rider hath he hurled into the sea and into the abyss of humility. This is the 23rd step. He who mounts it, if any can mount it, will be strong. So a beautiful, again, a uh, bit of imagery here. Uh, and again, in the Evergetinos, we read quite a bit about this self-reproach. Uh, that this uh, not only uh, uh, causes the rider to fall, but the, the horse itself too. And the, the tie there of vainglory and pride. If you remember, John was saying, I can't understand why they add this extra step about vainglory, why the fathers do this. And eventually he answers his own question that uh, vainglory is the horse upon which pride rides. And, uh, you know, this desire of, again for, or this uh, self-esteem or seeing oneself in this positive light, well, it's self-reproach that will, you know, make both the, the rider fall off of that horse, but also trip up the horse itself. And, uh, and so, this you know, kind of radical self-honesty and acknowledgement of our sin before the Lord becomes the, the source of our strength. Uh, yet there is, you know, this kind of, you know, they're realist. And John says, you know, he who mounts it, if any can mount it, uh, will be strong that this is a fierce battle not to be made light of and to be fought at every moment. Okay. 
Now, this actually isn't the end of the step, but does anybody have uh, a question uh, before we move on to what he ties to it? Any, any questions or comments about what we've read? Okay. All right. Well, he adds a little addendum here on page 174, again, if you're following in our text, uh, concerning unmentionable blasphemous thoughts. And um, again, you know, there's a, a reason for his tying it to pride in particular, uh, especially as I mentioned for uh, those who are the simple souls, but he also does offer some remedies here. And once more, this isn't uncommon and we might experience it at some point in our, our spiritual life. So it's good to understand it, or at least to have some understanding of it. Number 38, we have heard that from a troublesome root and mother comes a most troublesome offspring. That is to say, unspeakable blasphemy is born from foul pride. So it is necessary to bring it into the open for it is no ordinary creature, but the most cruel of all our foes and enemies. And what is still worse, it is difficult to put into words, to confess, or to expose these thoughts to a spiritual physician. And so this unholy disease has produced frustration and despair in many, destroying all their hope like a worm in a tree. So, you know, the most unspeakable things about God, about the Blessed Virgin, about the sacrament, uh, or even while one is engaged in worship itself, that these kind of unholy thoughts will emerge. And pride, John is telling us, is the, the seed of this, that we uh, provide a kind of opening for that. Uh, if pride makes the monk a demon himself, uh, then we are going to be subject uh, to uh, the very things that would be uh, that a demon would do, which would be to be blas blaspheme God and all that which is holy. And uh, but for the person struggling in the spiritual life, it can be just devastating. Number 39, during the divine services and at the very moment when the mysteries are being accomplished, this vile enemy often blasphemes the Lord and the holy sacrifice that is being consecrated. Wherefore, we clearly learn that it is not our soul that pronounces these unspeakable, godless and unthinkable words within us, but the God-hating fiend who fled from heaven for uttering blasphemies against the Lord there too, as it would seem. For if these shameless and disgraceful words are my own, how could I worship after having received the gift? How can I praise and revile at one and the same time? So John is saying, you know, if we are engaged in the act of worship and these things emerge, that the, the two can't coexist. And so in his mind, this gives shines a kind of light upon this experience that in regards to its origin uh, that while it is so disturbing and seems to arise within and perhaps even because of some pride of our own we allow that opening the origin of it is not within oneself but from the the evil one uh, who is seeking to drive us into despair this deceiver and corrupter of souls has often driven many out of their mind. No other thought is so difficult to tell in confession as this. That is why it often remains with many to the very end of their lives. For nothing gives the demons and bad thoughts such power over us as nourishing and hiding them in our heart unconfessed. So, so dangerous that they seem unspeakable. And the shame that can often be tied to them can drive a person into darkness, uh, certainly on an emotional level, but drive them in the darkness in the sense of hiding the thought or of holding it within them, because they, it seems too difficult to, to even uh, bring before one's own confessor. And 
so if we have not had this experience, we might not understand the pain that uh, John is speaking about here, that the individual having these kinds of thoughts would be go going through and what would lead them to hide it, the, the, the shame that it gives rise to, that the, these thoughts can be so vivid and come at a moment that it allows John to say, this is the most cruel of all foes because it attacks a person at the very moment when they are engaged in this most intimate uh, of uh, relations with God uh, in the act of worship itself. No one in the face of blasphemous thoughts need think that the guilt lies within him for the Lord is the knower of hearts and he is aware that such words and thoughts do not come from us, but from our foes. So this is where, you know, some light is uh, comes for the individual struggling with it, that God knows it already. God sees the truth about it. And so why hide from it? He knows the origin of the thoughts and, uh, and is compassionate towards us. And, uh, and so we should not seek to, to hide, hide them from the confessor. Drunkenness is the cause of stumbling and pride is a cause of unseemly thoughts. As far as his stumbling is concerned, the drunkard is not to blame but he will certainly be punished for his drunkenness. So we won't be necessarily punished for the unseemly thoughts, but for the pride. And so that's where we, we if we need to focus our attention uh, is in overcoming it in every possible way from our life. Uh, that in a sense, they're merely symptomatic of the pride that exists within us that makes us vulnerable to them even though their origin comes from outside when we stand in prayer those unclean and unspeakable thoughts assail us but if we continue praying to the end they retire at once for they do not fight those who stand up to them so again, you know, no one goes up against a plucky fighter. So John is always one encouraging us to fight the good fight of faith and to endure to the end, even if we seem to be on our back and the enemies over standing over top of us, ready to strike the fatal blow, that we would continue to, to fight against it. And... Uh, one of the interesting things, you know, I don't know why it's coming back to mind again and again, but that movie, Man of God, is that in facing that slander and uh, facing the attack, the injustice towards those whom he loves, his spiritual children, uh, that you could see Nectarius struggling with great sorrow and almost despair in the face of it and uh, struggling not to give himself over to anger. And throughout the movie, what, what it shows is this kind of intensity of prayer and prostrations in particular. If you go back and watch the movie, uh, I know somebody who's watched it many times over and they show uh, Nectarius with calluses on his knuckles. Uh, because of the number of prostrations with every Jesus prayer, he's down making a full prostration on the ground, wherever he might be. If he's experiencing the affliction of these thoughts, if he's out working in the garden, he's up and down making these prostrations in prayer to involve the whole self as he's engaged in this spiritual battle. And uh, I was struck by the imagery of that because in the, in the West, we don't talk often. Uh, or in the Latin right, I've never heard it spoken of in terms of making prostrations as part of one's spiritual life or of one's prayer. Uh, there's kneeling and other uh, kinds of things, but this idea of making a prostration uh, while in the midst of one's prayers or throughout one's prayers uh, on a regular basis uh, is not as 
I haven't found it spoken of often except among the Eastern Fathers, but in the movie you see it enacted in this very uh, tangible and kind of visceral fashion, you know, to the point of sweat pouring off. And this engagement in prayer and fighting with the temptation until it begins to recede uh, or, or until it stops is something that's very important that often we will give up after a very brief struggle and give ourselves over to a particular temptation, whether it's to anger or to something else. And so often we we hear these stories, you know, of saints going out and standing in, you know, hip weight, hip high cold, ice cold water or things such as that. And again, you know, they're not just doing this to punish themselves, but uh, to to remain engaged in that battle uh, as long as one needs to. And with these prostrations, it's something similar. Again, to involve the whole self and to, uh, uh, you know, to slow the, the mind down, to humble the mind and the body. And so this physical act of humbling the body, of, of prostrating oneself before God, adds to the, the, the prostrating oneself to God in prayer, uh, asking for his aid and his grace. And, uh, and so with thoughts such as these, uh, there is this need for a kind of continuing to pray to the end, John tells us, until they, they cease. This understanding, I think, would be of great aid to all of us. I mean, I think throughout the spiritual struggle as a whole, you know, it's certainly not thoughts of, it's not blasphemous thoughts where we uh, are afflicted like this uh, with a kind of, in a relentless kind of fashion. Number 44, the godless foe not only blasphemes God and everything divine, but utters the most shameful and indecent words within our minds to make us either give up praying or else despair of ourselves. He has prevented many from praying and separated many from the holy mysteries. So you see what I was talking about there, to give up praying, that there is this kind of relentlessness there, or even to step away from the holy mysteries themselves, uh, that uh, because of the thoughts, and uh, and so struggling with them again till they dissipate uh, becomes something that's essential. And each time that one does that, uh, it weakens their power over the mind and the heart. Uh, Suzanne writes, would kneeling be the Western counterpart to prostrations? I think on some level, because it is a humbling of body, uh, you know, this a kind of prostration in and of itself. Uh, but uh, the prostrations, I think, you know, one can kneel in prayer, and certainly someone like St. Charbel did for long periods of time. And so I, the short answer to your question would be yes. Uh, I think the uh, the Eastern vision of it, though, you know, of multiple prostrations uh, throughout the course of uh, a period of prayer, of, of getting up and down, the exerting of oneself, maybe less so. Because the, the kneeling can be, it's more of a static image, uh, static kind of position for us. Uh, this evil and inhuman tyrant has wearied the bodies of some with grief, have ex has exhausted others with fasting, and has given them no rest. He does this with those living in monastic life, as well as with people living in the world, suggesting to them that there is no hope whatsoever of salvation for them and assuring them that they are more to be pitied and more wretched than all the unbelievers and heathens. So deceiving suggestions and deceiving suggestions that even drive a person uh, to engage in the ascetic life in an imbalanced way 
of fatiguing themselves too much uh, through, say, through fasting, uh, that because the thoughts are so disturbing, and uh, and so wearing themselves uh, wearing themselves out. So again, this image that he's uh, painting for us of this cruel foe uh, is becoming more and more clear to us as the further we we read that not only are we afflicted by the thoughts themselves, but also then the suggestions to uh, pull us into a greater despondency by uh, making us think that we are worse than the greatest of all heathens uh, for having them. He who is troubled by the spirit of blasphemy and wants to be delivered from it, should know for certain that it is not his soul that is the cause of such thoughts, but the impure demon who once said to the Lord, all these things I will give thee if thou wilt fall down and worship me. And so let us also humiliate him and without paying the least regard to his suggestion, say to him, get thee behind me, Satan. I shall worship the Lord my God and him alone will I serve. Thy toil and thy word shall return upon thine own head, and thy blasphemy will come down upon thine own pate in the present and in the age to come. Amen. So the Lord himself becomes the, the model for us, as it were, in how we combat uh, the thoughts, uh, and uh, that we do not engage in a dialogue that there is this swift and straightforward way that we see Christ uh, deal with Satan uh, after the 40 days in the desert and often making use simply of the scriptures and not giving heed of what is being said or put before him, uh, but, but, but rather quoting back the word of God itself. And so should our response be the same, get behind me, Satan, uh, that's the Lord alone that I worship, and that should be it. Uh, this kind of, we have to be wary. Sometimes there's this, uh, in some of the, the fathers, a description of what's called talking back, you know, of engaging in this battle, battle of talking back to the demons, you know, engaging in a more direct kind of battle or warfare. And a lot of the fathers are wary of this and say that it's better to leave evil and sin alone uh, because we're never going to be able to outwit the evil one. And so the humble path is, is always the best one to turn the mind and the heart to God as swiftly as possible to humble oneself before the Lord. Uh, David Swiderski writes, the prostrations are common in Jewish prayer as well. That's right. Early Spanish tradition sometimes one lays face first in the form of a cross, similar to a priest when ordained. That's right. Thank you for those. Uh, the, the, neither came to mind. So yes, it is. we do see it in the, the Western tradition. Uh, but you don't hear it spoken of very much anymore uh, in terms of spiritual counsel. Uh, and I think these kind of corporal, these kind of bodily aspects of prayer can be very important uh, in, in the spiritual battle. And again, in humbling oneself. Uh, so in the Eastern Catholic Church, do the faithful stand during the liturgy? Yes, for just about all of it, except maybe during the readings uh, and the, the reading of the, uh, of the epistle. Uh, but the, the standing would be uh, as a... You know, there's a psalm, you know, this, the servant keeps the eyes on the, the hand of the master, you know, always re ready and watchful uh, in one's worship. And so the humbler position or the, the readier position, as it were, would be one of standing rather than sit sitting uh, before the Lord. And uh, pews really become... Uh, come into play much later and often through uh, the Protestant churches. And, uh, but a lot of churches for a long, long period of time had no pews whatsoever. 
except maybe somewhere around the periphery for the elderly or the infirm, but uh, typically worship would be done standing. Uh, Marine says in the Orthodox Church in Hawaii, you stand and they touch the floor many times, right? Absolutely. Let's see. So that brings us to 830. And there are a few other remedies here that go on to the next page that I, I don't want to, to rush through. And so rather than trying to just get through this step, we'll wait and finish it up next week. And uh, I don't have any plans to go anywhere uh, soon. And so we'll be able to, to establish uh, a, a regular pattern here again to be consistent. So thank you for your patience this last month and, uh, and sticking with the group. And uh, appreciate you coming again here tonight. So why don't we close as always with the Our Father, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Lord God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace.